Hello and welcome to Nightlight. A few years ago, I had a, a little notebook that I kept notes in about various phrases that I, I ran across in the English language. Phrases that I found to be so common and yet so comp, so so opposite the truth. One of the most familiar ones was sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I, I'm not sure where that little sing-song poem came from, but it's one of the worst lies that we ever swallowed. Sticks and stones can break your bones and words can destroy your life. Uh, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can break your heart. And... Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs, a man with a, a broken body, he can su sustain that, but a man with a broken spirit, he can't bear it. So, uh, I, for some reason, I kept notes on some of these crazy little statements that we we make, like time heals all wounds. Well, time doesn't heal wounds. The passing of time does nothing to heal or cleanse the effects of evil. Any graveyard ought to be able to tell you that. Time hadn't helped those folks at all. Unless they are born of the Spirit and uh, awaiting the resurrection, time won't do them any good. And there's lots more, and I don't want to dwell on them, but I just use them as an introductory point to begin to deal with with the whole subject of, of words. You know, two sessions ago, we talked about singing as a spiritual weapon. And then last time, we talked about solitude and silence. But one of the points that I wanted to make uh, concerning solitude and silence is that the purpose of solitude and silence is not for silence per se. But the silence is a, a place where the Word can be formed in us and then birthed through us. Just like the Incarnation, we talked about silent night, holy night, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, for God imparts to human hearts the blessing of His heaven. In that silence, God forms in us what He wants to birth through us. So it's a pregnant silence. It's not a passive silence. It's a, a silence filled with meaning and potential, not an empty silence at all. And uh, in order to come to this point in, in our study of these things, I've had to go back and, and remember over the 35 to 40 years of my experience with, with Christian ministry and with the move of the Spirit and the restoration of the gifts of the Spirit and all the ups and downs that we've all experienced uh, in relation to the church in, 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 its, in its phases of restoration. And it wasn't too many years ago. Uh, well, I guess it was many years ago, 35, maybe 40 years ago, that I heard my first sermon on faith-filled words. It was a wonderful sermon. The whole name of the sermon was Faith-Filled Words Dominate the Laws of Sin and Death. 
and uh, taken from Romans chapter 8, verse 2, uh, which says, There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and whom the Spirit of uh, for, for the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. And it was a great sermon. And it was the beginning of a whole movement through a part of the body of Christ dealing with what was called the confession of our faith. Now, that phrase, confession of our faith, comes from the book of Hebrews, among other places, where it calls Jesus the great high priest and the conf- and the. Uh, and it tells us to hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. The word confession, uh, the, the Greek word for it, homologeo, which means to say the same thing as. So holding fast our confession means that we say what God says. God says you're a sinner. You agree with God. You confess your sins. And then he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Then God also says that once you've repented and you are uh, in right relation with him, that there is no condemnation uh, to you. God's not looking to hold a stick over your head and and beat you up. His purpose for convicting us is to bring us to reality so he can bless and affirm and give life. He can't bless and affirm evil. That's a contradiction in terms. So he has to get us out of the evil so that he can bless us on the path of life. And so in that case, the confession of our faith would be saying the same thing God says, which is that he wants to bless us and and strengthen us in all goodness. Then uh, another form of confession would be saying the same thing God says about something he's put in your heart to believe him for. He calls those things which be not as though they were, uh, Romans chapter 4 tells us. So we rule in life by Christ Jesus, Romans 4 also says. And so we, we say the same thing God says. We align our mouth and our heart with God's word and with God's heart. And to not do that, the Bible says, is evil. If you read the story there in the book of Numbers where uh, the children of Israel sent spies into the land to spy out the land to see what the potential was for for them to take the land. Well, God ends the question of what the potential was when God said, I want you to go take the land. But instead of believing God's word, uh, the, the, the spies come back. You know, they weren't supposed to go, by the way, to see if they could take the land. That wasn't the purpose. Their, the purpose was to just simply see what was going on and come back with a report of what the land was like. That was all. But they came back not with a report of uh, what the land was like and what they could expect when they went in, but 10 of them came back with what the Bible calls an evil report. Why was it evil? Because it was devoid of respect for God's promise and God's, therefore, respect for God's character. There was no respect for God's character because there was no respect for God's word. And so they brought back an evil report. And as a result, the only two of those 12 that came into the land eventually was the two that had the good report and the the report that aligned with God's word, uh, Joshua and Caleb. 
Now, those were great days. Those were days of awakening for us uh, who had, many of us who had grown up under preaching, and and I don't mean to be critical of the preaching we grew up under, uh, but we grew up under preaching that simply focused on getting people um, saved and repenting and and on their way to heaven. Well, thank God that's very important, obviously. It's the most important thing there is. But because it was the most important thing there is, a whole lot of the rest of the Bible got completely ignored and never got preached. And I've said this repeatedly. It's, it's, it's what's more, what's the most important thing for a drowning man to get him out of the water so he didn't drown. But if he gets on the beach and is laying there soaking wet and covered in slime and you say, come on, I want to get you to a safe place and dress you and get you back on your feet. He says, oh, no, no, that's that's all secondary. Nothing's more important than laying here on the beach and being thankful that I didn't drown. And so 40 years later, he's still wallowing there on the beach and thankful that he didn't drown. Well, nobody in their right mind would argue the fact that it was good that he didn't drown. But let's get up and get on with it. There's something else to go to, for life to, to happen than just to not die. And God has a lot more in, in store for us than just us not being damned. Thank God he's delivered us from damnation. But for heaven's sakes, no, for earth's sakes, for, for your sakes, uh, there's life to be lived out beyond the initial uh, redemption from damnation. But the evangelical church fell into a, a, a hole of just preaching. And so uh, unless, you, unless you've been around it, you might think I'm really being unkind or blasphemous even, even. But to preach salvation messages to the same people every Sunday, people that you know are born again, people that you know are Christians, preaching the same salvation message Sunday after Sunday and giving a, an invitation for people to come to, to repentance it is the most ludicrous, ridiculous thing. And I'll tell you why people do it. If all you preach is the new birth, then all you ever have to expect of people is to be born again. And if you just keep preaching that, keep preaching that, keep preaching that, and never deal with what the Bible also has to say with just as much authority about, uh, like Hebrews chapter 6, let us go on unto maturity. Hebrews chapter 5, by now you ought to be teaching others, yet you yourself still need that someone teach you the first basic principles of the doctrines of God and have become such as have need of milk, and you cannot digest strong meat. For a strong meat is for those who have trained their senses to discern the difference between good and evil. Milk is for babies. Well, we like to keep people babies for I don't know what reason. I mean, I, I can't comprehend a normal parent wanting his child to stay babies. I understand the emotional side of it. I mean, when uh, watching my children grow, it's, it's always been hard for me to watch them go into mature, more mature levels. And yet, what would be much harder than watching them mature would be watching them uh, be retarded, obviously. And so I recognize the pain of letting them go into maturity, but I recognize the greater pain of, of what would, it would be like if they didn't grow up. 
And so uh, I can't imagine a pastor feeling any different. And I'm sure there's some fine pastors who do want their people to go on to maturity. But there's a spiritual mindset in evangelicalism that has, in some circles, made it uh, convenient to just preach the new birth so you don't have to deal with all the ins and outs and ups and downs of the maturing process. And I suppose there may be some leaders who take comfort in the idea that if people stay em uh, emotionally and spiritually immature, they're easily controlled and led. I, I think it's crazy if you think that way because immature people are not actually easily controlled and led. They're rebellious and childish and so problems. But uh, anyway, my point is, having come from a milieu of of spiritual retardation where all you heard was the new birth and then periodically certain sermons preached that made you feel guilty if you didn't come to church and didn't pay your tithes and didn't, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we begin to hear sermons about taking the land and uh, aligning our mouth with God's mouth and aligning, aligning our heart with God's heart. And it, it set us on fire. And we went out with power and with vision and with a purpose and with a sense of, of destiny and a sense of a spiritual anointing. And we begin to watch our mouth and we begin to watch our heart. And we were careful uh, not to speak things that were in, in dishonor of the Word of God. That's a, that's a good thing. But it didn't take long for what began as a blessing and a, a, an invitation into power, God, real power, anointing, and goodness, and truth, and vision. It, it didn't take long for it to disintegrate into a superstitious bunch of baloney. So people would talk about uh, how their confession was going to win for them, you name it. Uh, if any two of you will agree as touch any, anything they shall ask, it'll be done for them. So Matthew 18, that verse became a popular mantra among some Christians. And uh, would, you, would you agree with me that God's going to give me a Cadillac? Or would you agree with me that God's going to do whatever? And they, they begin to think of it like a formula, almost like a spell. If we, we cast this spell, God has to do it because the Word says. And so uh, there was in, then you begin to hear silly, silly sermons like uh, holding God to his Word. Holding God to his word? Who the blazes does anybody think they are? That they're going to hold God to his word? I mean, the whole idea, just convoluted foolishness. Come boldly before the throne of grace doesn't mean come arrogantly. It means come with the confidence of a child who's beloved and, and welcomed. But it sure doesn't mean to stomp in with your legal contract written out uh, and commanding God to obey it. And in some circles, it got just that ridiculous. Well, by the late 1970s and the early 1980s, you begin to see the debris of shipwrecked faith washing up on the shore of the Christian uh, church in the West. Many shipwrecked people out there commanding God and telling God what to do uh, were crashing up against the rocks of, of reality. 
and uh, uh, shipwrecked, shipwrecked and bitter and angry and saying, you know, I tried that faith stuff and it was just a bunch of baloney and it ruined my life. Well, real faith didn't ruin anybody's life, but a, a, a convoluted, crazy misconception of it certainly did and certainly should be expected to cause shipwreck. And so uh, even those of us who didn't necessarily crash against the rocks begin to back away from the original vision and begin to think, well, you know, this this name it and claim it stuff has gotten way out of hand. And of course, name it and claim it does get out of hand. But speaking the word of God in alignment with what God's spirit has placed in you through the word is a principle that has never changed now, at this point, I'm about to say some things that don't necessarily apply to anybody but me. You know, Mary Mary warns me. She said, you know, you sometimes you confess your sins too much on Nightlight. And, and I, you know, I try to listen to my wife's wisdom. But you all, I'm at the age now where I'm, I'm beginning to look at it as, as to evaluate what I've done and what I'm doing. And I've got to tell you that by the mid-1980s, I had thrown the baby out with the bathwater in in some areas. And one of them is the one I'm talking about right here. Uh, I had been careful with my mouth uh, there during the 70s and my early discipling days. I was careful to make sure my words lined up with the truth of God. Not because I was trying to cast spells or thinking that if I did it just right and got the combination just right, that would open the treasure house of God as if God is just a a mechanical vending machine that if you put in the right stuff, you'll get the right stuff back. Uh, And I I got hurt and I got disappointed and I saw all the shipwrecks around me. I saw pastors that I looked up to, who I was learning from, uh, who had been riding high on the idea of uh, you you have what you say and uh, you can get what you say and all that kind of stuff. And I saw them crashing and burning all around me. I saw their marriages collapse. And long about, I don't know, 1981 or 82, I was, uh, I got a call from a, a, a pastor's wife who wanted to come see me about the disintegrating nature of her marriage. And she came to see me at, at the office there. And uh, she said, uh, she said, you know, I need to talk to you about our marriage. And I said, well, tell me. And she said, well, <clears throat> and she began to hesitate. And then she began to grope for words. And I said, well, is, is the marriage in trouble? Is there a problem? Oh, no, no, there's no trouble. There's no problem. I'm not going to confess that. I said, well, okay, hang on, let me get this straight. You said you needed to come see me because of marriage difficulties, but I need you to describe to me the best you can what what you're dealing with. She said, well, I can't. I'm not going to speak evil over my marriage. I I, I just want you to uh, help me sort out a few details. I said, I can't help you sort out details if you don't tell me what we're dealing with. And this went on and on for 30 minutes or so. And I finally realized that what I was sitting here dealing with was a woman who'd been raised under the preaching and teaching of, of uh, you can have what you say and name it and claim it stuff. And she had gotten the idea 
erroneously, whether it was through the preaching being erroneous or through her interpretation of it being erroneous. And there's various forms of that in there. But I realized she had the idea that if she spoke out loud, we are having difficulty in our relationship, and I would like to know how maybe I could do some things to to correct the problem in the relationship. <clears throat> and, of course, I wanted her to get her husband to come in, too, because I wanted to talk to both of them, obviously, and she wouldn't do that. So it's it's a sad thing. I'm not trying to make fun of this at all. They They were divorced within a couple of months. They were separated and eventually divorced. And she thought if she spoke out loud the problem, she would bring evil down on her marriage. And by not speaking the truth and getting the help she needed, she did bring evil down on her, on her marriage, so to speak. Nothing in the scriptures affirms the idea that if you just ignore difficulties and speak positively, it'll all just magically go away. Uh, confession of faith certainly is a biblical principle, but faith in the New Testament as well as in the previous testament, in, in, the, in the, uh, the first covenant. I don't really like using the term old covenant because it gives people a wrong idea. Uh, like that's all passe and it's not really the word of God. That's a whole other subject I won't try to get into here. But faith in both testaments is actually the word faithfulness. Faithfulness. The just shall live by faith. No, actually it's the just shall live by faithfulness. Faithfulness is not a magic formula. Faithfulness is commitment to a relationship to a person. Faith always in the scriptures has to do with relationship and faithfulness to that relationship. And, of course, we're speaking about relationship to God. Of course, it can be in relationship to our, our mate or, or to our friends, but, but primarily, obviously, we're talking about faith in God. And you see, what began to be preached along uh, about the mid-70s and got really popular in the late 70s was that faith was a force. This was, this was preached, and you can still find this teaching in many circles, and there's books printed on it, uh, out there on it. Faith is a force. God himself uses the force of faith. And if you tap into that force, then you're aligning yourself up with the power that made the worlds, and you can see all kind of great fruit come from it. Well, nothing in the Scripture supports the idea that faith is some kind of independent force that God found and tapped into and learned how to use, and that's the implication of this, whether they say it like that or not. And that if you just tap into that, you can, you can uh, have the same kind of power. That's witchcraft. That's the yin and yang. That's uh, the force of Star Wars. That's Hinduism. That's mind over matter. Uh, that's New Ageism. And so, of course, people got shipwrecked right and left, falling into that kind of foolishness, arrogance, pride. You know, folks, this is an aside, but let me just say it while I'm thinking about it. 
Deception always is preceded by rebellion. There's something in us we will not yield to God, and there's something in us we want to keep under the control of our own will. And that is what sets us up for deception. Now, if you come in and just outright lie to me, you may deceive me for a little while, but eventually the truth will out. But inner deception, deception that takes me off course and pulls me off into the dark, doesn't happen to me as if I'm an innocent victim. It happens because there's something in me I will not yield to God. So over the years, I have watched people who have shipwrecked over the idea of faith. Uh, and in, in, in every case, there has been this demand that God come through for them on their terms. And uh, this unyielding uh, stubbornness that they thought was faith. Well, you know, faith is faithfulness to a person, capital P. And so uh, faith, let me give you an example, a biblical example of what faithfulness is. Faith, imunah is the word in Hebrew. And uh, you remember when Moses was up on the mountainside and the battle was going badly and Aaron and Hur came over and held Moses' arms up. And as long as Moses' arms were held up, the, the battle went in the right direction. But when his arms went down, it went the other way. And uh, that it says that Aaron and Hur came to steady Moses' arms, steady. That word translated steady is the word imona. To make his arms steady is the idea of what it means to be faithful to God. Faithfulness to God is a steady, daily, willful, ongoing practice of honor, obedience, trust, and love toward God. It is not me grabbing a scripture, plopping it in my mouth like a bullet going into a chamber and firing it back out my, my muzzle and uh, expecting it to hit the target and God better make sure that the laws of the universe line up with my will. And that's so obvious to most people that I, I'm afraid I might be insulting the intelligence of some people who, who are listening to this like, well, for heaven's sakes, Clay, of course. I mean, do you think we've been out here listening to the Word of God through you for all these years and you think we're this stupid? I mean, nobody nobody is this foolish, are they? But my reason for telling you this, and some of you lived through it with me. I mean, you know what I'm talking about because you were around in those days, but a large number of our audience in Nightlight uh, were were not even teenagers during this period. I mean, some of them weren't born yet. And some of us were already getting older. But the point is, I got fed up and then I got angry. <clears throat> and it's so easy to try to interpret uh, anger positively by, by claiming that it's prophetic zeal. I've mentioned that before, so I don't want to beat a dead horse about it but uh so i began to really uh go after it and and, uh, and speak against it but in doing that i began to be for motivated by something negative 
instead of something positive. Now, I'm not saying there's never a place to speak negatively. In fact, I don't really like the whole idea of negative versus positive. If you think about that in terms of electricity, it takes both to have any power. And so uh, negative affirmation, for instance, is just as important in the life of a child as positive affirmation. If you lie to your child and tell them they're good at something when they're not, you're just setting them up for disappointment and embarrassment and failure. So negative affirmation may say, oh, you know, darling, you're just not, you're really not cut out to, to play that sport. Uh, why don't you think about this? You're really good at this. See, that's negative and positive, and it takes both. In our foolish, silly, humanistic culture that tries to affirm everybody no matter what they're doing, uh, you say, well, oh, it's so wonderful the creative way you spell or the uh, unusual way you uh, do arithmetic. It's just really interesting the way you come up with two plus two is five. Well, that's not positive affirmation, and that's not negative affirmation. That's just mindless foolishness. And it's setting us up for a generation of people who are f ignorant and proud of it. But the point is, negative speaking uh, the, the way I'm describing it now, uh, just being motivated to correct a problem can easily fall into not correcting a problem, but becoming cynical and vindictive and critical of the problem. And I, I was guilty of that. And I began to really be offended by the proliferation of name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, what I considered materialistic, immature, childish Christian thinking that made the whole world a candy store and you're loose in it to grab whatever you want any way you want and claim that God gave you the power to do it. But that was an overreaction. And anytime you throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, you're heading in error. You know, error is usually born of reaction against another error. Error is not corrected by reacting to it, but error is corrected by speaking the truth that the error has, has uh, misunderstood. And you stand in the truth, and then the error has a, a, a plumb line to, to come back and line itself up to. But if you just react against some other error, and you react against it in an, a spirit of negativity, all you do is create an opposite error in the opposite direction. And, and this is how we've had so many denominations be born over the last several hundred years. People reacting in bitterness and unforgiveness and anger. Instead of being aflame with the joy of, of truth, revelation of new truth or newly understood truth. So I... I got very sloppy in my speech. I became irresponsible in the way I spoke. And uh, I, I've told you before, as a young man and as a boy, I had this in common with the prophet Isaiah. Only one thing that I have in common with Isaiah. I was a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I grew up in a a culture where cussing was just as normal as breathing. And uh, it came out of a spirit of bitterness and rancor and immorality. 
Because out of the abundance of your heart, Jesus said, your mouth will speak. Now, I knew better, but I I covered up my frustration and anger and and uh, whatever other negative energies were mixed in there with a, a self-deception of uh, prophetic zeal and zeal for the truth of God and zeal for the house of God. And, you know, that... It's bad enough to be deceived, but when you're deceived uh, and then you baptize it and try to make it a, a God's fault, you're in a place where it's very difficult for you to be reached. And uh, this this failure to watch my mouth resulted in the reopening up of uh, of tributaries inside my spirit that the Lord had begun to heal. Um, of anger and just a general flippancy in certain subjects. Now, I'm not going to sit here and confess all my sins to you. Some of you sadly know them because you've been around me. Those of you who are closer to me have been around me and seen me in action in, in those things. I, I'm not I'm not trying to wallow in my sin. I, the Lord has cleansed me and forgiven me. I, I'm not trying to confess to you because I think you need to hear it. To be honest, with all due respect, it's between me and the Lord, and the Lord's cleansed it. But at the same time, for me to say it's not your business is not accurate either because the the book of James says that a teacher has the greater condemnation. We have more to answer for than other people do. And so if I'm going to subject you to my voice once a month, I have no right to just flippantly say it's none of your business that I've been failing in this area. It's every, it's very much your business, actually. I mean, on the private level of my own personal soul, it's between me and God. But on the public level of ministry, it's certainly your business. And some of you have written me letters, lovingly kind letters, letters written in the spirit of grace and truth saying, you know, I feel like sometimes you get on the edge of a kind of reactionaryism that's not the Holy Spirit. And I have tried to receive those letters and take them on board. I don't think I've ever been flippant with such letters and and disregarded them. And I think I've always written people back and thanked them and tried to explain where I was coming from without trying to be defensive. But here's the thing. With all the good that might have been offered me through those letters, there was a root in me of of, uh, of bitterness that had cr- got, taken root in me and had grown up over the years. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 says, um, be careful that you don't allow a root of bitterness to take root in you because the fruit of that root will bear poison. Let me actually turn to that because I, I don't. There's aspects of it I don't want to skip. Uh, this is taken, by the way, from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is quoting here from Deuteronomy, I believe, chapter 26 or maybe chapter 29. If you read chapter 26, 27, 28, and 29, you'll find it. But uh, he says here in in Hebrews chapter. 12, uh, beginning at verse uh, 13 and following. You can really start at the beginning of the chapter, but 
it's, I mean, it's hard to know where to start, but, uh, well, let's start at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, seeing, this is, by the way, carrying on from chapter 11, which is the, the hall of fame of faith. But again, it's the word faithfulness. And the hall of fame of the faithful are those who both have seen miraculous interventions in their lives and also who were faithful unto death, even in the face of torture. Uh, I've actually heard some of these nincompoops, uh, I'm sorry, some of these people who teach this false view of faith. They've actually said in my presence, I've heard them with my own ears, that if Paul and the early church had had enough faith, they would never have suffered persecution, but uh, they didn't understand the faith message like, like we've come to understand it. That, that's, that's not even worth answering. But anyway, chapter 12, just forget the chapter and recognize this carries on that same uh, message of the, the Hall of Fame of Faith. And he says, therefore, and when you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. It speaks to, uh, to precede, look at what preceded it. Considering all that's been said about the household of faith in chapter 11, therefore, seeing we also are surrounded about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that easily besets us. The weights are not sins, but they're things that weigh us down and cause us to be uh, hindered in our race against sin, and sin that overcomes us. Lay aside every weight and the sin that does easily beset us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the beginner and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such mistreatment in the hands of sinners against himself, or you will become weary and give up in your minds. See, by getting off on trying to fight negative things, I got my eyes off of the one great positive truth, which is what I just read to you. Jesus, the beginner and the finisher of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him or, you, or you'll give up. You'll become weary in your mind. I did that. I became weary in my mind. I became weary with all of the crazy contradictions I saw in Christian circles. And uh, all the weird manifestations that sometimes appeared in meetings that I knew was it was a weird mixture. And I got my mind on and got my, my eyes on those things. And for a time, I became, uh, un, under, under the duress of all that, I became uh, bitter and angry. And, and then it went on to say, he says, uh, verse 4, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. He said, you hadn't, you hadn't paid much of a price yet in the face of the battle. And then he goes on in verse 5 to talk about the chastening of the Lord. And he's talking about the chastening of the Lord all the way down to verse uh, 11, 12, 13. We'll skip that part because that's a, a subject actually to itself. But then he says here in verse uh, 12, Therefore lift up the hands which hang down and, and strengthen the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, clay, lest... You, you become so lame that you, you completely fall off the road. 
but rather be healed. Follow peace with all people and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Looking diligently, he says, get your eyes back on Jesus. Looking diligently, lest lest any of you fail to uh, live in the grace of God. Did you know it's, it's, uh, it's possible to fail to appropriate the grace of God. Now this is a, uh, I don't want to digress here, but uh, this is part of the misunderstanding of the message of grace that has become become so ensconced in evangelical circles. Some people think grace is just a legal document that guarantees you to go to heaven. You can live any way you want to, uh, serve sin any way you want to, disregard the Word of God any way you want to, but as long as you've got your grace ticket that you've got uh, legally set in motion at some point in your past, God is so bureaucratic and ignorant that he'll look at your ticket instead of your heart and stamp you as validated for heaven, uh, no matter what. Uh, well, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, 12, 13, 14 says, um, the, the grace of God has appeared to all men. And what does grace do? It says, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking uh, for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has purchased for himself his own special people who will be zealous to do that which is good. Grace teaches you what's wrong, teaches you how to live what's right, and causes you to live in union with and in relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the message of grace that just says, just get just get saved, just get saved, whatever that means. Just pray the prayer, go through the motions, and then you, grace will cover you. Well, the writer of Hebrews wouldn't recognize that message at all. And so he says in verse 15, looking diligently, lest any of you fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and end up defiling many. One of my most often prayed prayers is from Psalm 69. And it says, Lord, let none who seek you be put to shame because of me. And the reason that teachers, and I don't, you know, I'd like to say, well, I'm not a teacher. I'll just avoid this this greater uh, responsibility by saying I'm not a teacher. But that's 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 a cop out. I'm 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 teaching people, trying to teach people how to walk with the Lord and what the Lord has to say. It's very grave responsibility to to claim that we speak for God. And so when I'm when I'm talking to you about my mistakes, it's out of the fear of the Lord that I do it. Out of, I mean, the wholesome fear of the Lord. I'm not afraid God's going to throw me away. He loves me. Uh, he cares about me. He gave himself for me. He, he came after me. He pursued me. And he's, he's pursued me with the same love that he caught me with to begin with. So I'm not saying that I'm fearful of God throwing me away. I'm saying I'm respectful of God's chastening in my life when he's correcting things in me that could produce bad fruit. And so when he says here, 
follow peace with all people and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. And and look, watch over yourself diligently lest you fail to live in the grace of God and lest a root of bitterness spring up and trouble you and through you, many people be defiled. If this isn't cleansed out of my heart, many people could be hurt by it and defiled by it. A root of bitterness bears a kind of fruit. People eat that fruit and they become bitter too. And so uh, we'll stop there because I don't have time to go off in the whole chapter as much as I'd like to. But I began to repent. I began to look look at all the things that were coming out of my mouth that were not only not positive not good not good fruit not not good life bearing fruit but even uh, cursing james says can good fruit good water and, and bitter water come out of the same fountain well obviously the the, the the rhetorical question means, well, no, you wouldn't think it would, but how can how come it does seem to happen among believers? And so uh, I, I fell back into times of uh, speaking what I thought was truth, but speaking that which the Holy Spirit could not possibly bless, and even that which the enemy could use. Now, when I went into times of solitude and quiet, and ask the Holy Spirit to search my heart and to see if there's any wicked way in me. You know, let the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O God, my strength and my Redeemer. Um, no, I, I didn't give my mouth over to the kind of filth that you hear in common parlance today, even on television. No, I wouldn't use certain words. Uh, I'm not patting myself on the back for that. I, I didn't say certain words. And I, to be honest, I'm around certain believers who, in the name of honesty and being real, talk like people who don't know Jesus Christ. And it it makes me angry. But whenever I would get angry at them, every time the Holy Spirit would say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, Clay, wait a minute. Before you start taking the, the, the pole what you think is the telephone pole out of their eye, you better look at the one in your own. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out. Now, to a young believer who maybe doesn't know anything about the Word of God compared to what I know, and I don't know much, but I know way more than some of these young believers, and when I get upset at them for using foul language, what I consider foul language, and and yet I'm not being careful about my own use of my mouth, then I have no right to, co- to correct them. You know, I have no authority to correct them. And so um, for them, dirty language, cussing or things of that nature, yeah, it's bad, but it's not as bad in their mouth as negativity, unforgiveness, bitterness, and uh uh, skepticism and, and uh, cynicism is in my mouth. Do, do you see what I'm saying? In in a mature, a more mature believer, cynicism and uh, negativity and uh, lack of gratitude and lack of love is more of a sound of 
cursing in God's ears than an outright misuse, uh, you know, cuss word is uh, in the mouth of a young believer. Does that make sense? I, I think it does. So um, I began to repent. Now, repentance has a lot of different levels and forms, but when I say I began to repent, I had made it a habit of just reacting to things. And that's where the spirit of the bitterness began to give place to anger, uh, and anger began to give place to to just pop it off, just just shooting off my mouth in, in reaction to things. And uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, because out of your heart come the forces that control your life. The idea there is, uh, the picture in Hebrew is of, of an undercurrent in a river. Uh, you, you're floating down the river of life, but there's this undercurrent that comes up and takes you suddenly in a direction you didn't mean to go. But where did it come from? It came from your own heart. Out of your heart come the forces that control your life. So watch over your heart. How do you watch over your heart? Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. The only way to watch over your heart is to watch over your mouth. And so, see, Proverbs 18 says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 6, 2 says, you're snared by the words of your mouth. Your mouth, uh, I told you last in our last time together, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, uh, if if you if you call your brother a fool, you, you're in danger of hellfire. And James says uh, the tongue can be set on fire of hell. Uh, you know, just the use of the word "damn" or "hell," which is you know that's your that's your basic cuss words. There's a lot of words that we consider way worse than that. <laughs> I don't need to list them. But, but yet, you know, you can't get worse than damn or hell. I mean, when you think of, what do you, what do you think the word means, damn or hell? It, it's talking about something being utterly, completely, forever destroyed out of the presence of God. So when you say damn this or damn that, when you invoke the name of hell, you're, in, you're invoking the same thing. But see, we, we have become so, uh, uh, acclimatized to the spirit of the world that, uh, you know, you, I grew up with it. Uh, you go to an uh, Ole Miss LSU football game and uh, Ole Miss is over there singing, you know, doing their cheer and, uh, go, you know, go to hell, LSU, go to hell. And it, oh, it's funny and it's cute. Is it funny and cute? When you, Jesus said in that same chapter in Matthew 12, uh, you will give account to God on the day of judgment for every word you speak. The Greek there is every inoperative, improperly used word. Say, so, well, man, that sounds severe. Well, let me tell you why it's severe. We are the only species in creation that has been given the God power of speech. Angels can speak, but they speak as mess, angelos means messenger. Angels are messengers. They speak what they've been given to say. I don't think that necessarily means that angels can't have a conversation and speak out of their own capacity to communicate. But, and of course, I'm speaking beyond what I could possibly have 
uh, empirical information about. But I don't believe angels have the the freedom of will like humans do because we're created in the image and likeness of God. And God, his very nature is the Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. And the capacity to use words in order to bring forth God's purposes is uh, chief among the accoutrements of, of human beings to function in kingdom power. And uh, I've, I've told this story before, but it just bears repeating. I knew a, a, a man many years ago who was uh, an Assemblies of God evangelist. And he told me this story about him and his roommate in college. He said they had a, a little game they played of making fun of evangelists they had heard and, and, and uh, mimicking their voice inflections and uh, saying, quote, in the name of Jesus, and then doing some kind of silly thing, uh, acting out uh, healing or deliverance. It, boys being silly and playful, and you might think it's innocuous. But they, they played around that way. Well, they were asked to come to a, a certain church and lead a youth revival, which in the middle of the Jesus movement turned into a real revival. And people were being brought to Christ right and left, and People were being delivered of all kinds of darkness, and there was real revival happening. But this one young girl began to manifest a demonic uh, uh, presence, and it was very, very uh, dramatic and and out, you know, in in their face, loud and uh, demonstrable, de demonstrable. And uh, they got down there to to command the thing out, and when they said in the name of Jesus, this thing turned and and just glared at them and said. Do you really mean it this time? I don't have to obey you. And they were impotent to deal with that particular level of evil because of the way they had uh, foolishly misused the name of the Lord, taken the name of the Lord in vain. Now, taking the name of the Lord in vain doesn't necessarily mean saying GD, although obviously that's included. But taking the name of the Lord in vain is like taking the name of, of a, a woman taking the name of her husband in vain. She takes his name at the altar, but then lives as if she's single. She has taken his name in vain. The idea is that she is dishonoring that name, not in her verbiage, but in everything that she does and is. Well, by, by playing around with the, the holy name of the Lord even though it was ignorant and boyish and silly. In the spirit realm, the demons didn't take in consideration, well, they're just ignorant boys and they don't know any better, we'll let them have a pass. No, they're legalists. And when they heard this, this flippancy, this childishness of misuse of the name and all the attitudes that went with it, uh, they stood their ground. Demons don't bow to the name of Jesus as if it is a magic talisman they have to obey. It's the relationship and the honor given that name because of the relationship and honor of the, of, of the heart of the person that causes the, the name of Jesus uh, to be effective. You see this in Acts um, chapter, is it what, chapter 19? Read the whole book of Acts and you'll find it, where Paul is uh, 
the seven sons of Siva decide they're going to go out and cast out demons. And they, they use a formula. It's a formula. They say, we command you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And they come upon this demon-possessed man and they try their formula. We command you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And, and the Bible says that the demonized man said, Jesus we acknowledge and Paul we've heard of. The King James, unfortunately, says Jesus we know and Paul we know. But the text is Jesus, we, we know who he is. And Paul we've heard of, but who are you? And then this demonized man jumps on all seven of them and beats them half naked and they run home naked and bleeding. You see, treating spiritual reality flippantly is one of the most dangerous things you can do. I, I've had the honor and the burden of ministering to many Western missionaries. Uh, I spent weeks in Switzerland one time ministering to nobody but missionaries coming out of the third world country. Many of these missionaries were in desperate need of mental and emotional healing. And, and some of them had been terribly beaten up by the powers of darkness. And here's why. So I, I didn't think the devil could do that to believers. Well, it depends on whether you're really a believer or not. Remember, Faith is not just a state of being, it's a relationship. So if a Western uh, missionary goes into the realms owned by the devil or taken hijacked by the devil at the, uh, you know, given over by the people that live in the area and they go in there thinking like a Western uh, unbeliever that there's no such thing as demons and the supernatural is not real, then you're, they're denying the scripture and they're denying the revelation of God and they are in that area unbelievers. And so they go in there and make fun of the witch doctors and make fun of the occult and make fun of all of it, not because they have a superior faith, but because they have an inferior faith, a faithless attitude that treats the scriptures as if it's merely written by ignorant, unenlightened uh, people. And so they would get under the power of these demons and have to have deliverance and healing. And most of all, a proper education in biblical uh, responsibility and, and response to biblical truth. So I'm saying all that to say this. Are you aware of your language? I'm not, I've, I've talked a lot to, in this session about uh, cussing and about things of that nature. But, I'm, but there's so much more than, than just that. The misuse of the tongue. Uh, some of the most evil speech you could hear could be in a Bible study where somebody in the name of pr sharing a prayer request ends up divulging secrets of people's difficult private lives and, 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 and gossip, in the spirit of gossip, trying to covertly share it as a prayer request. Um any kind of slander, any kind of speech that can hurt someone's reputation. I'm telling you, I, I listen sometimes to what's come out of my mouth before, and I've thought, if I said that to the face of the person, it, it would destroy our relationship. And yet, I've just sat here and listened to conversations about them behind their back, uh, that because they're not present, somehow I try to make it okay it's a now look uh, don't i don't want to be legalistic here i know there are times when it is necessary to discuss people's difficulties for their sake 
But a, a good principle to remember is if you're not part of the problem or part of the answer, then you're gossiping. If you're not part of the problem or part of the answer, you're gossiping. And if the spirit by which you're speaking is not a spirit of restoration and redemption, then it, it's best not to speak. Now, I'm real good at telling everybody else how to do this, but I'm speaking to you uh, from a heart recently corrected and, and rebuked by the Lord, and I pray that that will rub off on you to the degree that it needs to. Because the, the, the last point I want to make is, let's, let's forget all the, the negative. Yeah, we've repented of the negative. Your mouth should be used for blessing, for intercession, for praise and thanksgiving and worship, and for the communication of truth. Uh, there's certainly a place for l l holy levity and laughter and fun. Of course there is. I'm not talking about becoming some religious prig. But let's don't use that fact as an excuse to be uh, too far the other direction. God have mercy on us and help us to keep our mouth clean, to keep our mouth pure, to keep our mouth set apart unto God. And don't fall for the lie that says in the name of um, in the name of honesty and being real, we just become vulgar and worldly. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to please take what I've shared and let it hit the, the target where it needs to hit, uh, where, where it will bring forth life and fruit and help to, to people. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.